You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. I'm joined today by a wonderful young lady. Her name is Candace Mama, and um, it's, it's quite incredible when one reads what what Candace has achieved. She she was named as one of Vogue Paris's 30 most inspiring women. She was named in as one of the top 20 African women by the United Nations and the African Union. And, of course, she published a book, Forgiveness Redefined, which is what we're chatting about today. It's her experience as being a child of one of Eugene de Kock, a.k.a. Prime Evil's victims. Candice, welcome to the show. Hi, Chad. Thank you so much for having me. Candice, it's, it's great to have you on air. It's just so sad that we're chatting to you while... Certain cities in America are burning. We're seeing race-based violence in America. That is totally unexpected when one looks at where America supposedly came from during the 50s and the 60s segregation movements. And it's reminiscent of South Africa in the late 80s, early 90s. But your story is unique. And it's, it's, it's a story that I'm sure touches everybody because you went through something very traumatic even although you were just one year of age when it happened, you've lived your entire life. Tell our listeners a little bit about your dad and, and the meeting that you eventually had with Eugene de Kock. Absolutely. So um, when I was nine months old, my father was brutally murdered by the apartheid assassin, of course, Eugene de Kock. Uh, at around the age of nine, um, I discovered a book called Into the Heart of Darkness by Jacques Poe. And my mom had bought this book. And every time people would come over to visit, she'd ask me to get this book and send me out of the room. And every single time without fail, when people would turn to this particular page, they would scream or cry or it would elicit a reaction. So one day I decided that I'm going to go and find out what this is because I knew it had something to do with my dad and I knew it was a picture of him. So I went, I listened one day, I was eavesdropping on what page everyone was turning to. And when I was home alone, I thought this is my great opportunity. So I opened the book and in the book was a picture of my dad's burned body. And so from the age of nine, I lived with that image in my mind of my father was killed and I knew who had done it. And I knew he was brutally murdered because it was just, you know, his burned body in that picture. So around the age of 16, I started having really severe panic attacks and just the depression and anger had really started to bubble. Um, and I decided to attempt to forgive Eugene. And so by the age of 23, um, my forgiveness was put to the test because I went to go meet Eugene in prison and we sat down together and he told us, me and my family, what had happened to my father, exactly what he had done. Um, he had emptied out his magazine cartridge on my father. Then uh, when he saw signs of life in the vehicle, uh, he proceeded to set them on fire. And so within that meeting, I extended the branch of forgiveness towards Eugene. And afterwards, we embraced. And yes, we went our separate ways. And the story hit the media. And here we are. Sure. It's, it's not every day I'm, I'm actually almost at a loss for words. Thinking about a child that, that finds this out at such a young age and has that image and, and, and I, I, I don't mean to, to make it a pun, but you have that image burned into one's brain. It, yeah. It's, it's severe post-traumatic stress that you must have suffered in, in, in your teenage years without most probably even realizing it. How, how did this forgiveness come about? Because I, I'm angry just thinking about it. I'm angry about the fact that somebody was 
assassinated and then burnt. Um, yeah. it, there's, there's no excuse for it. There wasn't a contact. There wasn't a, a shootout. It wasn't that something had occurred. It was, it was a planned assassination. Yeah. How did you work through the anger? How did you work through the post-traumatic stress? Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where it really, you know, when someone is killed or when someone passes on, I think for every family and for every person left behind, it really does leave a scar, right? But I think death really, it dismantles a family. And so especially in our case where my mom, my dad was 25, my mom was 24, and she was left with these two kids and, you know, so it really damaged her as well. So it impacted how she could parent us. And so it really did change the course of my life in so many ways. And for me, really, I think it was when I was 16 and I was actually hospitalized because I had this attack and I thought it was a heart attack. And I went to the doctor and I went through all these tests and eventually the next day he said to myself and my mom he said you know I've never seen stress symptoms so severe in someone your age you've got ulcers Um, I forgot which other symptoms he started naming and he said your body's killing you and I remember at that time I was okay with it I was like you know what I'd rather die like if this is what life is I don't want to be alive and I think it was during that processing of that period that I started thinking to myself well if you're gonna die then why not attempt to live? And it was the first time I really started getting to know my father, not from this picture that was got, like burnt into my brain, but rather as a human being, as why did he die? Why was he willing to put his life on the line for us? And I think it was that that was the turning point for me. And I realized that I couldn't continue to hate Eugene and live a fruitful and happy life. So for me, that's really why I had to forgive. So, Let's let's give a, a a a a memorial to your dad. For our listeners who don't know who your father was, who was he, and why was he assassinated? Absolutely. So my father was Glenet Masilo Mama, but we knew him as Vincent because that's the name he went by. And my father was very close to Zef Mutupeng, who, if people don't know, he was the head of the Pan-African Congress, the PAC. And so my father worked very closely with him. And what Eugene and them wanted to do was destabilize the movement. And so my father was um, identified with three other gentlemen as people who could come out and become a problem, as they called it. And so they decided to set up this ambush that took place in Nalspreit. And when my father, my father was a very skilled driver. So when he was driving the vehicle into Nalspreit, that's where the ambush happened. And Eugene de Kock and his team um, all assassinated him. It was a very well publicized case at the TRC. And I remember reading about it. It wasn't the first instance where members of either um, Flock Class Unit C10 or members of the CCB um, burnt the, the the bodies of of their victims, and wow. there's this one there's this one particular incident where at a river they burnt the bodies of victims while brying and drinking, and yes. it's it's just it's just become so bizarre. And when one sees what's happening in the United States at the moment, one has to ask why. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about the American situation, and I also want to talk about the brutality that's happening in South Africa right now because it's not been spoken about, yet Mm. it's getting out of hand, and it's something that needs to be looked at. We'll be back after this. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Candice 
back to you, Mark. This is this comes with lockdown. We've been living through lockdown now, and today we've moved to level one. But let's talk about the the serious subject at hand. There's a couple of people whose names I think the public are unaware of, and I'd like to read those names out so that perhaps our listeners can read up on them. The one is Collins Causa, the other is Sibu Siso Amos, the other is Petrus Miggles, and the third, the fourth rather is Adame Emmanuel. These are four South Africans that have died at the hands of police brutality since lockdown started. And my question to you is we've seen police brutality worldwide. In America, it's race-based. In South Africa, we can no longer say it's race-based, but there seems to be this culture of violence and brutality. What is your take on what, what's going on? Yeah, Chad, and no need to apologize. I know how I can be. Um, but um, coming back to the conversation we're having, I think, you know, what people need to realize is the systems that the world is built on currently are broken and they're damaged. And I think the incidents that we're seeing is the fact that you know, black bodies and bodies of color have not mattered for a very long time in history, right? And I think you bring it back to South Africa, where then it becomes black-on-black violence in many ways, because the cops or the brutality is coming from black policemen. But I think it is that abuse of power, right? And I think I want to break it down into two. So if we address the American element first, I think what people need to realize with the Black Lives Matter movement or the movement that's currently happening is It's not a black movement. And in South Africa, too, it's not a black movement. It is a human movement. All of us should be outraged. All of us should be angry. All of us should be doing something. And I think, you know, the world, the way it's painted at the moment, it's like they need to sort themselves out. They being obviously black people. Black people need to figure this out. But unfortunately, we live in a world that has become so intertwined that if we leave it to just one group of marginalized people, the anger is just going to boil over and the riots are going to end up becoming so much more dangerous for all of us than they should be. So coming back to South Africa then, you know, in South Africa, it comes back to the idea that black lives have not mattered for that long, right? So there's a sense of PTSD I've discovered that South Africans overall have, and we deal with it in very different ways. Um white people tend to feel the, how do I put this? The, it's like guilt and it's shame. So guilt and shame are two very difficult emotions to feel because they minimize and therefore it becomes something where we don't act. It's like I'm too ashamed to act. And if I do act, does that mean I take on the responsibility of what my ancestors have done, right? So then that becomes a problem. And then on black people, we tend to have internalized this thing that our lives really don't matter. And therefore you start seeing this brutality where it's black people killing black people because we've been so conditioned to believe that we don't matter. And therefore just another black body is not going to add to, you know, the global outrage. So we're living in a very, very challenging time where it's, we're realizing that the structures that have been can no longer stand, you know, and we need to change it. We need to fix it. And we need to figure out how we move forward effectively. Yesterday was, was a very emotional day for me. And I'm not sure why. I don't know if it's, a, if it's this complete buildup of lockdown and seeing the unnecessary violence meted out or the riots mm. that are taking place in America. But two things stood out for me last, last night. My wife and I were watching an international network and this, this, 
this black lady spoke about the talk that all mothers have with their sons. Mm-hmm. And it, it was it was bizarre because in South Africa, parents have the talk with their children, and that's normally when their children reach puberty and are going to become sexually active. In America, the talk that mothers have with their black sons is to warn them about how they must conduct themselves in public mm-hmm. so as not to make themselves be perceived as a threat so that they do not suffer at the hands of white police officers. This was completely heartbreaking. And we then watched an interview with a professor, a law professor, who has been part of a project in Alabama that has freed multiple black men. In fact, 140 people in 30 years, and the majority of which have been on death row, he's intervened and showed how their guilt was based on the color of their skin, not on the evidence presented. And multiple Mm -hmm. of these men have been released from prison. Talk to me about this talk that mothers have. It's something I would have imagined in apartheid South Africa. How can this still be happening in America? I mean, it's heartbreaking. And I, you know, I still get emotional about these issues. And I think the reason being is that, you know, when we speak privilege, right, I think a lot of people bring it down to economics, simply economics. And, you know, when you break it down to just economics, it's almost an easier pill to swallow. But when you realize that if you as a white parent um, can freely send your child anywhere in the world and can freely send your child into the neighborhood without fear or concern that their skin color will be something that is weaponized against them. And so I know my own experience of I was take, um, I was working at the University of Washington in Seattle and I remember I was working with marginalized um, communities and the stories were heartbreaking and then I went to go visit um, one of my Latin friends' uh, family, and the police pulled up behind us. And the first thing he said to me is, please put your hands on the dashboard so that they don't, you know, do anything hasty and they know that we're going to cooperate. And so moments like that, for every televised incident, there's so many we don't see, right? And in America, what tends to happen is from the child from the time a child hits around eight where they can be a perceivable threat I mean think of that eight years old where they are seen by society as no longer being cute or a kid but now as someone who is to be watched as a criminal I mean it is so incredibly heartbreaking and for as long as we keep quiet about these things and we don't start acknowledging where can we play a role and by we I mean yes white communities have to start speaking out Chad and I don't say this to guilt people. I don't think it should be based on guilt. I think it should be based on the fact that we are not living equally as people, right? And it brings me to the All Lives Matter movement. The reason that movement is something that we we cannot recognize at the moment is the fact that truthfully speaking, white lives have always mattered, right? In South Africa, it's only 26 years that black lives have been seen as actually equal to in some ways. And in America, it's been less than I think 100 years. And so when people say black lives matter, it's not about excluding white lives. It's with understanding that white lives have always mattered. However, black lives do not hold the same value in society. And therefore, so many black men in America especially fill the prison system because they are falsely imprisoned all the time because there's an element of being able to weaponize whiteness, you know, and that is such a problem in society. And I think we need to start speaking out against these things. And society cannot, and as we can see now with the looting, the rioting, the world, people are at a point where they're thinking, I would, I would rather see the world burn 
then continue to live the way I do. And so, yes, when it comes back to the talk, when it comes back to incarceration, when it comes back to black Americans, this truly is a struggle. And I think people need to stop focusing on the fact that Target was on fire and realizing that why would people do this? What brings people to that breaking point where they feel like, I would rather see this world burn than continue to be treated the way I am. Very well put. We're going to take our last break of the day. When we come back, we're going to talk to Candice about her book, Forgiveness Redefined. (music) To our listeners today, I really want you to go onto Facebook and look for a page called Forgiveness Redefined. And you'll see in February last year, Candice wrote an introduction about who she is. And it makes for, for, for such interesting reading that you'll want to get a copy of Forgiveness Redefined. Tell me about the process of writing Forgiveness Redefined and, and whether I'm right in assuming it, it, it was, it was a relief, but it was also painful. Absolutely, Chad, and thank you so much for that. Um, so, you know, I was never gonna write a memoir at the age of 28, you know, <laughs> like it just seemed like something that I wasn't equipped to do. And especially, like a story like forgiveness, I felt was reserved for people like Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela, people who were so seasoned, right, in this political field. But for me, it became crucial to speak about my story when I realized that pain does not know color. Pain does not know religion or creed. All of us experience a certain degree of pain. And it becomes our responsibility then to heal ourselves so that we can live a more fulfilled life. Because what anger does is it really does minimize your lived experience. And you think to yourself when you're living in pain and anger and resentment that this is how everyone sees the world. But it's when you start forgiving and start coming to terms with what has happened to you that you realize it's like you've been wearing rose-colored glasses. And you all of a sudden see the world so much clearer and you can be so much more productive. And so writing Forgiveness Redefined was deeply personal because it follows my journey of dealing with, you know, my father's pain, discovering his picture in this book, and then going and embracing the man who killed him. And I knew it was going to be something that people found challenging. And I wanted people to really read my book and, you know, question, question themselves, look at themselves in the mirror and say, you know what, I too can live freer. You know, I too can live a better life and I too can let go of this pain. And I think when the world starts to heal and we all individually heal, our communities heal, you know, it will inevitably heal the world. And I think that's where we need to head as people. You know, we can't keep spilling over this pain onto the next generation. So, yes, that's why I wrote the book. And, of course, it was a challenging experience, but I wouldn't take any of it back. It's a very important story, and I think that people tend to forget the collateral damage. When one looks at Mama Winnie, etc., we hear so many stories about her, but a lot of the stories that come out aren't necessarily nice stories. But one mm. doesn't realize the pain she went through being banished to Brunford and being punished for being the wife of the most well-known imprisoned um, terrorist, which is what he was called at the time in the world. And that's what makes your book, book so compelling is because we don't take into consideration as people the collateral damage that families suffer. And I think that's why it's an important read and something for people to look at. I would love to try end on a kumbaya, but we can't. The reality is cities in America are burning. People in South Africa are being beaten to death by the police. So I ask you to end the show by telling me how you think we as a people 
can do something to make a change because we can't carry on like this. Absolutely. And Chad, I really do believe that, you know, now more than ever, we've got voices. We've got these platforms that allow us to speak. We've got communities that listen to what we have to say on a consistent basis. And I think each and every single one of us starting to speak in a way that is more inclusive, starting to protest when things are going wrong, even if it's against someone who doesn't have the same skin tone as you, but starting to look at what's happening in the world as a human problem and not as a black versus white problem. And I genuinely believe that we are moving forward, right? And I think at times like this, it's so easy to look at what's happening and get disheartened and think, how on earth are we going to move past this? But I think history is our greatest teacher. You know, I mean, my dad died so that I'm living so much more free today. I get to travel the world. I get to date wherever I want. I get to be freer than he ever could be. And now it's our turn to make sure that the generation after us is even freer than we are. And it's just doing the daily things, calling out those racist people in your family, standing up to, you know, um, the people in your life who you know are prejudiced, starting to speak out when things go wrong. And we need all voices, you know, and I think we are going to move forward. Actually, I don't think it. I know it. And the world is going to change. It's just going to be which part of history do you want to be a part of? It has to change. Candace Mama, author, of Forgiveness Redefined, one of the most interesting people I've chatted to in a long time. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an honor. Thank you so much for your time.